Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Seated. The recall election this last week was certainly a great disappointment, wasn't it? But going into it, we knew that There are more registered Democrats and Republicans in this state, and so it was a long shot. But I was sure hoping and praying that enough Democrats would be sick and tired of the radical left's devastating policies coming out of Sacramento that we might turn the state. And so those of us as believers who uh, were informed and voted did the right thing. I mean, we voted for the recall, but more importantly, we prayed to that end in hopes of bringing about political change, which we know would only be for our short-term or temporal well-being. But we worked and prayed to that end nonetheless, and then we trusted God for the outcome, you know, whatever that outcome might be, because ultimately it's all in his hands. And of course, the outcome is that Gavin Newsom remains governor of the state, no doubt to the continued detriment of the state and the people who reside here. And I fear that he's going to come back with a vengeance. You know, I don't know if you heard his speech when he declared victory Tuesday night, but among other things, this is what he said, and I quote, speaking of the recall and defeating it, And in this, he said, we said yes to science. We said yes to vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic. We said yes to people's right to vote without fear of fake fraud or voter suppression. We said yes to women's fundamental constitutional right to decide for herself what she does with her body, her fate, and her future. We said yes to diversity. We said yes to inclusion. We said yes to pluralism. We said yes to all those things that we hold dear as Californians, and I would argue as Americans. Economic justice, social justice, racial justice, environmental justice are all values where California has made so much progress. All of those things were on the ballot this evening, he added. And then he went on to thank the voters for rejecting cynicism, negativity, and divisive politics. I mean, what hypocrisy. And the worst part is that he is celebrating many of the very things which God condemns. And so some people may be wondering, well, why did God allow this? Well, the bottom line is the outcome of the election certainly did not take God by surprise. Gavin Newsom remains the governor of the state of California, not because God simply allowed it, but rather because God ordained it. Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High rules the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, 
and sets over it the lowest of men. And so what are we to think of this then? If God ordained this, and he certainly did, what are we to think of this? Well, it's a quote that I used last week, but as one theologian from centuries ago said, and we see this throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he said, they who rule unjustly and incompetently have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people. A wicked king is the Lord's wrath upon the earth. And then later he said, a wicked prince is the Lord's scourge to punish the sins of the people. And we shouldn't think of this in terms of only unbelievers. And I'm not so sure we shouldn't think of this primarily in terms of God spanking the church for the sins of his people. So as our nation continues to go downhill and our selection of leaders gets worse by the day, I mean, it certainly seems that uh, this country is under God's divine judgment and consequently our nation, our state, and the church may be in for a good spanking because we certainly deserve it. But... At the same time, all isn't lost because there is always hope because Christ is king and he has in the past brought great spiritual awakenings in this country and he may do so again. We have no promise that he will. We know that during the tribulation period, there's going to be a great revival. Many people are going to be saved, but they're they're going to pay for it with their lives. But between now and then, we we have no promise that God will do this, but we should certainly pray that he will. And he may. We don't know. But as we learned two weeks ago in Psalm 2, the nations are raging, aren't they? People are plotting in vain. Governments have set themselves against Jesus, but he's laughing at them from his throne because he rules and reigns in unrivaled sovereignty and supremacy. And all of that we see going on is God simply working to bring about his plan and his purposes. As someone has said, rightly so, things aren't falling apart. They're merely falling into place. And so we should not be anxious or afraid over all that's going on around us because our king is Jesus. And our citizenship is still in heaven. And in that we rejoice, don't we? Because nothing in this world, no one and no power can ever separate us from Christ in our eternal home. But as we learned last week, as we live for Christ, as we live the the Christian life as exiles in a foreign land, as we are making our way to the eternal city in our heavenly home, we're going to encounter opposition from the world. And as we get closer and closer to the end of the age, we can expect the opposition to become much more fierce. So last week in Nehemiah chapter 4, we learned some very practical ways to stand against the opposition when it comes. Number one, we're to realize where the opposition comes from. Number two, we're to recognize the reason for the opposition. Number three, we're to resist the enemy. Number four, we're to refocus. In other words, we're to remember the Lord that he is an awesome God who will fight for us. And then number five, we reflect on what is involved. We reflect on what is at stake in the battle that we're in, and then we get on with the work of 
work of God, for the glory of God. I mean, the Christian life is a battle. And if anyone has told you otherwise, they're lying to you. Because the Christian life is a battle. But we need to keep on serving the Lord for the glory of God. And when opposition comes, the first thing we do is pray, and then we take action. We just keep at the work God has called us to. And we must always keep at the forefront of our minds the glorious truth that our God reigns and nothing takes him by surprise. God is not defeated. Nothing will prevail against him. Nothing will thwart the advance of his kingdom. The word of God is not chained. And no matter what happens in or to our state or nation, God is sovereign. He does not react to human events, but rather he directs them because he is in absolute control. And so we must trust him because God is faithful. I mean, these these difficult times have an eternal purpose. And this, again, this is just merely part of God's unfolding plan. And, And our responsibility is the same as it has always been. We are to love God, to become like him, to be useful to him. In other words, to serve him and to faithfully proclaim the gospel as he gives us opportunity. Because people need to hear about Jesus because he is the only hope for our nation. The gospel is the answer. We must remember that all that we are seeing in our country and around the world is first and foremost a spiritual problem. And it is ultimately the result of man's rejection of God and his word. And this is why the church and and individual believers experience opposition from men. Because man has rejected God and his word. But loved ones, this opposition is merely evidence of a much deeper problem that goes to the very core of man's being. Man's rejection of God and his opposition to God's work and God's people is simply the outward manifestation of the hatred for God and for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that fills the hearts of unbelievers. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, Jesus said as much in John chapter 15. He said, if they hated me, and they do, they're going to hate those who follow him as well. And so with this in mind, please turn to John chapter 15. We're going to begin this morning looking at John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, and we'll finish it up next week, Lord willing. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to have you stand this morning as we read our text. So John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, beginning now in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, let's remember the context of these verses. It takes place in the upper room. At this point, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, has already left, and Jesus has the 11 remaining disciples around him. Around him as his little children, he called them at the end of John chapter 13. And Jesus is ministering to them. He's, he's preparing them for his going away, and they're, they're deeply troubled at the very thought of it. I mean, they don't realize, as Jesus will say in chapter 16, that it's for their good that he's going. And so the words of Jesus up to this point in chapters 13, 14, and the first part of chapter 15 have been words of comfort. Words of encouragement, words of hope. And he's given them a series of gracious and glorious promises. In chapter 15, Jesus reemphasized the closeness and the intimacy of their relationship with him, using the metaphor of the vine and the branches, explaining what it is to abide in him. He has reassured them of his love for them and of the Father's love for them. In verses 9 to 17, Jesus said to them, I love you just as the Father has loved me. Abide in my love by keeping my commandments because I want your joy to be full. And he then commanded them to love one another as I have loved you, even to the laying down of your very life for a friend, because there is no greater love. You're my friends, he said. You're not just slaves, but my friends. I chose you and appointed you, and I want you to go and bear fruit. You know, ask the Father for whatever you need in my name, that he may give it to you. These things, he said in verse 17, I command so that you will love one another. And Jesus repeated the absolute importance of them loving one another, but this was not merely a repetition for emphasis. Rather, it set the stage for his instruction on the hatred that they would encounter from the world. And he had been speaking about not letting their hearts be troubled, about the benefits of abiding in him, about the love that is to exist between believers. Jesus had just told them that they would do even greater works than he did in, in 14, chapter 14, verse 12. And so they may have been envisioning you know, large, receptive crowds and, and just smooth sailing ahead. The triumphal entry just a few days earlier may also have given the disciples a false sense of success and acceptance. But this popularity would prove to be very short-lived. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus turns to the issue of the world's hatred and the consequent opposition and persecution because he knew that life was going to be very, very hard for the disciples. In the world, they would have tribulation. He promises that. 
The lives they were called to live and the gospel they preached put them on a collision course with the world. I mean, reality was they would face severe persecution, and not just from the pagan world, but also from the religious people of the day. And so Jesus forewarns them. He forewarns them that they must expect to be hated. They must expect opposition, hostility, and persecution. But loved ones, that is part and parcel of being a disciple of Christ. That is the cost of discipleship. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And for some it would mean death. And the fact is, every believer will experience a measure of persecution directly related to their faithfulness. And so after speaking to them of his love for them and their love for one another, Jesus now warns them of the world's hatred. And what a shock this dramatic change from love to hate must have been to the disciples. In verses 18 to 20, we have a description of the world's hatred. Look now at verse 18. Jesus begins by saying, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, in in the Greek, the word if does not express any doubt that this would happen. The if expects a positive answer. I mean, it was certain. And so it could be read, since the world hates you. And the world here does not refer to creation or to the physical environment. In this context, it speaks of the evil fallen world system of values which unregenerate man has built up. Its religions, its philosophy, every ideology that is anti-God, anti-Scripture, its programs, its plans in which there is no room for God or for the Lord Jesus. It would include all of those in the world who have no love or devotion for God or to God. So basically, it's human society apart from God and opposed to God. Whatever is against God, Whatever is against the, the Word of God is part of the system, and it hates God, and it hates the Lord Jesus, and it hates the Bible, and it hates the truth, because it's run by Satan. As John said in his first epistle in 1 John five nineteen, the whole world lies in the sway or in the power of the evil one. See, Christians are to be known for their love, but the world is known for its hatred. Paul said in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You know, the carnal mind. It's hostile to God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 30, as Paul there is describing unbelievers, he said they are haters of God. And everyone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ must expect to be hated by the world. And Jesus had already told his disciples what they could expect. In Mark chapter 13, verses 9 to 13, he said, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
And it's been that way from the very beginning of the church. And I don't believe that there's anyone here this morning who doubts the fact that the world hates Christians. Jesus could not have said it any plainer. And the history of the Christian church is replete with times of persecution, beginning with the first general persecution under the Roman emperor Nero, when each of the disciples, with the exception of the apostle John, were martyred for their faith. I mean, Paul was martyred under Nero. Even after the formal persecution of Christians ended throughout the Roman Empire during the reign of Constantine, the persecution of Christians continued throughout the world and throughout the centuries, and a lot of that is chronicled for us in Fox's Book of Martyrs. And even in recent times, Christians continue to suffer. In fact, it's been reported that in the last century, in the 20th century, 26 million Christians were martyred for their faith. And this is estimated to be more than the combined total of all the previous centuries. And this does not count for the untold numbers of Christians who have been imprisoned, tortured, or who have suffered financial loss. I mean, even this morning, as we are meeting here in the comfort of this building, there are believers around the world who are gathered together secretly out of fear for their very lives. Yet they go. They're present. The world's hatred of Christian uh, throughout the centuries continues even to this present day and will until the end of the age. The mass murderers of Christians today are primarily Muslims. The persecution by Islam is the most open persecution against Christians. It started back in the 7th century, and it's still going on today in at least 41 Muslim countries. But Christians have not just been the object of Muslim hatred. Now, throughout the entire history of the church, Christians have been the most hated and persecuted people in the world. And let's not make the mistake when we speak of the world to think of it only as something outside the visible church. Because there have been times when the greatest persecution of Christians came from within the church by those who profess Christianity but do not know Christ in a saving way. The persecution comes from outside the church, but also from within the institutional church, the visible church. Remember, it was the religious people of the day, the people who were considered the most religious of that day, that opposed and persecuted Jesus. And so in contrast, the Jesus' love for his disciples is the world's hatred. And based on the words of Jesus and the actions of the world, there is no doubt at all that the world will hate the followers of Christ. It is inevitable. And the only thing that is uncertain is the degree of hatred. And this will vary from Christian to Christian depending upon their individual circumstances. But for most of us living in 21st century America, 
the level of suffering is minimal. Minimal compared to other Christians living in other parts of the world because of the strong influence of Christianity at the beginning of our country. But loved ones, as you're very much aware, that is very rapidly diminishing. Rapidly. And at this point, nothing would surprise me under this governor or this administration. The truth is that all Christians who are publicly identifying themselves as the followers of Christ and who are seeking to live in a manner worthy of the gospel will be hated and suffer to some degree at the hands of the world. And it's going to get worse. And you know, honestly, as Christians in, in this country, I mean, you would think by looking at the lives of so many believers that they just think we're living in Christian Disneyland and this is just going to keep on going. And it's almost like uh, the majority of Christians in in the church are totally oblivious to the dire circumstances that we are in. And it it seems like they're, they're, they're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Oblivious, apathetic, complacent. Because if believers really understood the situation we are in, and they don't, it's obvious. Prayer meetings across the country in Bible-believing churches would be filled, and people would be beating down the door to get to church. But we're just going on as if everything's the same and it's always going to continue this way. And it's my job to jerk us all back into reality and to prepare us all for what is coming. As I said last week, we need to be like the men of Issachar who came to David, and it says that they were men understanding of the times and knew what they ought to do, knew what Israel ought to do. The church needs to wake up. Christians are going to suffer to some degree at the hands of the world. And we're going to see it at some point in the United States. But why? Why does the world system, including the religious world, hate the Christian, the one who believes in Jesus Christ and is just simply seeking to follow him? Well, Jesus gave several reasons. First of all, look back at verse 18. Because it hated him. If the world, or since the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You see, the world hates believers because it hates Jesus. And why does the world hate Jesus? Because fallen man is at enmity with God and rebels against his creator because of his fallen nature. 
But the ultimate reason the world hates Jesus is because he points out its evil. In John chapter 7, verse 7, speaking uh, to his unbelieving half-brothers, Jesus said this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. The reason the world hates Jesus is because he came into the world as light and pointed out its sin and rebellion against God. He exposed its false religion. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The world always hates to have its evil exposed and to be convicted of its sin. But that's not only the world. Believers don't want to have their sin exposed and be convicted of sin. And that's why on many occasions people will go home at church mad at the pastor. Why? Because he said something that put, put his finger on or put the finger on or lied on the very sin that they're living in. And they don't like it. And so rather than turning from their sin, recognizing it and repenting, they go home and have roast pastor or roast elders. But it doesn't matter whether you like it. What matters is, is it true? And if it's true, then deal with it. The world always hates to have its evil exposed and to be convicted of its sin. Because they know what they're doing is wrong. And they don't want their behavior condemned as evil, and so they do not, and they will not, Jesus said, come to the light, because they hate the light. The light Jesus sheds on the life of unbelieving men and women condemns them, and they don't like it. They don't like being told that Jesus is the only way of salvation. They don't like being called to faith and repentance and to submit their lives to Christ as Lord and Savior. They hate it. And they hate him. And Jesus was hated from his birth. Remember Herod. Herod the Great tried to kill him. Killed all the babies two years old and under in that area. Seeking to kill Jesus. The world's hatred for Jesus was seen almost from the very beginning of his public ministry. In John chapter 1, we read he came to his own and they did not receive him. John chapter 5 tells us the Jews were persecuting Jesus and were seeking all the more to kill him. In John chapter 8, Jesus, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious people of the day, said, You seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was despised and rejected of men. And at this point in the Gospel of John, the world was about to demonstrate the absolute depth of its hatred for Jesus within just a few hours when they nailed him to a cross and crucified him. And the disciples were not unaware of the hatred of Jesus. They had seen it. They would experienced it firsthand. And in the future, this hatred would manifest itself against them and would, would even increase, as the book of Acts indicates. 
So, loved ones, we always have to remember that whoever believes in Jesus must also expect to be rejected and hated by the world. And we haven't seen that in this country. I mean, minimally. I mean, this is a, this is a, a bubble. Because it's not like the rest of the world. And we think it's strange. But we shouldn't. Peter tells us that. And we need, need to begin to prepare ourselves for difficult days ahead. We always have to remember and expect to be rejected and hated by the world. Because Jesus is telling us here there is an inevitable head-on collision uh, between himself and the world and therefore between anyone who follows him in the world. Because the world hated Jesus, we who follow him can expect that many people will hate us as well. I mean, they're going to consider our beliefs and lifestyle narrow-minded, intolerant, prejudiced, and, and prudish. We can count on it. And so let's not be surprised. And let's not be discouraged when the world hates and rejects us too. Jesus told us it would happen. He's trying to prepare us for what's going to happen. And think about this. I mean, if Jesus, who was love incarnate, the purest love ever manifested on earth, if he was hated by men, and if the, the brighter the light of his love shone, the more fierce the hatred and animosity it met in response, then how can we expect any different? How can we expect to be liked and admired by the world? And that has been the great problem with seeker-sensitive churches. They compromise the truth. They compromise the gospel, seeking to make it more attractive to the world. And so they design their services around unbelievers. And so they're entertaining the goats rather than feeding the sheep. The cross has always been an offense. The gospel has always been an offense. And Jesus says to his disciples, when the world hates you, know that it, it has hated me before it hated you. The hate which was directed toward Jesus would also be directed toward them. It's inevitable. Wherever the gospel goes, wherever God's people are found, the hatred of the world for his followers will be found as well. And so to, to comfort and encourage his disciples, Jesus tells them he wants them to constantly keep in mind that they're in really good company. In fact, they're in the best of company. Because when the world hates them because they're his disciples, it shows that they belong to him. And that they're experiencing to a certain extent what he experienced all along. The world will hate his disciples because, first of all, it hated him. And secondly, the world will hate his disciples because his disciples are not of the world. 
Look at verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, and the implication is you are definitely not of the world, but if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And that's true, the world loves its own. If you were like the world in your inner being, your character and behavior, you'd be accepted by the unbelieving world. Because the world, not surprisingly, loves its own. The world loves those who live as the world does. And the world system functions on the basis of conformity. So as long as a person follows the fads and and fashions of the world and accepts the the values, morals, ethics, and ideologies of the world, as long as you go with the flow, you're going to get along. You're going to be accepted. The world doesn't really see any difference in you and your life. You're not a problem to them. You love and pursue the things the world loves and pursues. You speak and act like the world does. You live by their standards. Hey, you're going to, be, you're going to get along just fine in the world. And if you're getting along just fine in the world, you might want to ask yourself why. And by that, I don't mean that we're supposed to be weird or obnoxious or offensive. The gospel is the offense. The cross is the offense. We're not supposed to be offensive. No, if you're you're living by the world's standards and just doing what the world does, you'll get along just fine. Because the man or woman who's conformed to this world, who participates in its pleasures, who acts according to its principles, even though they may profess the name of Christ, is not going to be shunned, ostracized, or persecuted. Because the world loves its own. But on the other hand, anyone who does not conform to the pattern of the world, anyone who seeks to live differently, anyone who seeks to live to a higher godly standard, a biblical standard, you know, you want to seek to live to a higher standard than the world, well, you're on a collision course then with the world. Because it always opposes those who do not conform. And such was the case with the disciples of Jesus. And such is the case of all genuine believers in Christ. Back at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But Jesus says, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus says his followers are distinguished by what they are not. And we hear all the time in churches today, well, we shouldn't be known for what we're against or what we're not. Well, Jesus says his followers are distinguished by what they're not. All true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are not of the world. Certainly we're in the world physically. But we're not of the world spiritually. You know, we're not part, uh, we, don't, we don't participate in the world's evil system. I mean, we used to be part of that system. And there are two kingdoms existing in the world. There is the kingdom of darkness, which is in rebellion against God and is ruled by Satan, the god of this world. So there's the kingdom of darkness, but then there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life and light. 
And they don't mix. They don't mix. And at one time, like the disciples, all of us belong to the kingdom of darkness. As Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That describes what the disciples and all true believers once were. We were once spiritually dead, following the course of the world, going with the flow, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were in and of this fallen world. We were comfortable with and supportive of other unbelievers. We were right at home in the world's fallen system ruled by Satan. But then something happened, didn't it? What is that? Well, Jesus said to his disciples in verse 19, but I chose you out of the world. Again, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So we didn't even come up with the faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The reason why the disciples and all true believers are not of, of the world is this. Out of the world of darkness the Lord elected, or he chose these men for himself as he chose all who will follow him. We were all dead in trespasses and sin, but God, because of His great love, His great mercy, He chose us. He set His love on us and chose us in eternity past. And in time, He saved us. We were born again. And when we were born again through the Spirit, we received new life, spiritual life, a new nature, and we were made fit for the kingdom of God. We became new creations in Christ. So now we have new desires for God that we didn't have before. We have a new love for God, a thankfulness to God for His abundant mercy in Christ. We have a new desire for the things of God, a hunger for God's Word, a, a love for God's people, a love for the local church, and a desire for holiness. And we have peace with God and the peace of God. We have a different joy, purpose, hope, and love. We now have certainty, truth, and a godly standard for life and living. And certainly it's not that we will never desire again to sin, but rather that the new direction of our lives will be marked by these new desires that come by virtue of the new birth. Listen, someone who claims to have been born again, but they have no love for God, no love for His Word, no love for His people, no love for the local church, no desire for holiness, they have not been born again. Because these desires come from the new birth. 
We have been transferred from the domain of darkness ruled by the God of this world into the kingdom of light and life, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so now the Bible tells us we're no longer to be living for ourselves, but rather for Him who died for us. Our lives are headed in a totally new direction. I mean, the world's going in one direction, and we're not going that way. I mean, the, the world believes certain things, and we don't believe those things. The world accepts certain things, and we do not. The world says certain things are right, but we don't believe it. We say, no, those very things are wrong, and not only that, they're a sin against Almighty God. I mean, if we had continued to be part of the world, the world would have continued to be friendly to us. But this ended when we made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So when you and I became Christians, our relationship to the world drastically changed because we are now citizens of heaven. We now belong to the King of glory. We are pilgrims and sojourners, aliens, if you will, citizens of heaven living in another realm, an, an evil, fallen, and falling system of unregenerate people controlled by Satan. So we're living in enemy territory, and we don't fit in. I mean, we're different. And please keep that in mind, we're in enemy territory. We're in a, a spiritual battle that is raging all around us, a battle for the souls of men and women and boys and girls, a battle for the soul of our nation. And so we have to have a wartime mentality. We have to understand the battle we are in and quit living like it doesn't exist. We are to live and think and perceive things differently, looking at things through the lens of Scripture. We're to have a biblical worldview. And we are told by our King, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we're told, John tells us in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires, and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away in its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And when John speaks of the world, he doesn't mean the physical planet. He's not referring to the mountains, the rivers, the trees, you know, beaches and oceans. He also doesn't mean the people who live on the planet because we're to love others, even our enemies, and seek to, to bring them to faith in Christ. So he's not telling us to, not to love people. When John says, do not love the world, he means the evil world system with its false philosophies, ideologies, religions, values, morals, lifestyles, and aspirations that are independent of and in opposition to God. This is the world that John warns us not to love. And to love the world is to seek the world's acceptance and applause. It's to adopt the world's values, standards, and morals, to crave the world's pleasures and follow its philosophies. And John says, do not do it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now certainly, we may appreciate things, look at things, 
You know, buy and sell things, have things, enjoy things. We're to enjoy richly uh, all the good things that God has given us. But we're not to love things. We're not to put anything before God because we're to love Him first and foremost. Our lives are to be centered upon and focused upon God and the things of God. So let me ask you, with, with that in mind, let me ask you this morning, what, what are you seeking today? Are you pursuing the world's acceptance and applause? Are you trying to be like the world, seeking its popularity? You know, are you, are you trying to straddle the fence? You know, you, you want to have the best of both worlds? Can't be done. It's like a man with one foot on a dock and one foot on a boat that's pulling away. You have to make up your mind because you can't do both. You can't have Christ and love and serve Him and have all that is in the world at the same time. James chapter 4, verse 4. We'll get to this when we get back into James in a few weeks. James says, you adulterous people. I mean, he's speaking to believers. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he's likening a believer who's living for the things in the world to someone who commits adultery. Because it is. It's spiritual adultery. Because we belong to Christ. We've been wed to him, so to speak. And to live for other things is spiritual adultery. I don't know if you've ever spoken to anyone who's been on the receiving end uh, of an adulterous spouse. But it is one of the most devastating things in all of the world. It's the trauma that that brings is probably uh, the only thing that would be more devastating would be to watch your children murdered before your very eyes and not be able to do anything about it. And James says, or he accuses the people of God of being spiritually adulterous. As believers, our lives are are going against the flow, not with it. We cannot compromise. We cannot agree to the world's requirements. We cannot live to the world's standards. And look, we all want to be liked, right? People want to be popular, well thought of, accepted. No one likes to be shunned and ostracized. 
But what it all comes down to is this. You have to ask yourself, what price am I willing to pay for acceptance and popularity? Are you straddling the fence or are you standing with Christ? Are you pursuing faithfulness with Jesus over being accepted by the world? And Jesus saved us and set us apart from the world to be distinctive, to live differently. And again, I don't mean be weird or anything like that. We're not supposed to be weird. There are a lot of weird Christians, though. I mean, <laughs> But we're not supposed to be weird. But we're to live differently. And listen, if you live the Christian life uh, in this world, it will be different. Because that's not the way the majority of people are living. Jesus saved us to be distinctive and to live differently. I mean, as Paul said to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. May God has saved us by his grace to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives within this very evil age. I mean, it's a way of living which is distinct from the world because it flows out of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And listen, it's a lifestyle that will absolutely have an impact on unbelievers around us. I mean, most often a believer's life will be a rebuke, a silent rebuke to the unbelieving world. Because godly lives condemn its evil, sinful uh, ways and systems. You don't have to say anything sometimes. Just the mere fact that you don't participate in the world's activities is a rebuke. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 4.4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Not only will the believer's life be a rebuke to the world, but the truth of God's word, the message we proclaim, is a stinging rebuke. Why? Well, because it exposes, confronts, and condemns the world's sin. I mean, you stand up and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except by Him. Listen, you're going to provoke the world's animosity. That is going to be met with cries of arrogance and exclusion and and bigotry and and narrow-mindedness. And it's going to be met with the reply, well, what right do you have to tell me that I'm going to hell just because I don't believe in Jesus the way you do? I mean, people become irate. They become irate at the exclusivity of the gospel. And if you start calling evil, evil, and sin, sin, look out. Look out. I mean, that's why the world hated Jesus, isn't it? Because he testified that its deeds, its works are evil. And Jesus came into the world as light, pointed out its sin and rebellion against God, and the world hated him for it, and they killed him. 
And the world will naturally regard the believer as a traitor because he has abandoned their value system. The believer's life demonstrates his separation to Christ and the world will be upset by the difference because it's convicting. Look, I mean, the world just can't understand the kind of lifestyle that is devoid of the sinful pleasures, lusts, and deception which the world prizes. And consequently, the world reacts to Christians in the same way they reacted to our Lord. And so the basic reason why the world hates the disciples as it hated Jesus before them is because they're not of the world. They're born from above. And since they don't belong to the world, they belong to Christ. The world hates them. You are not of the world, Jesus says, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And human nature never changes, right? The carnal mind is always enmity against God. It's also against God's image and his people. And so just as they hated our perfect, sinless, holy, gracious, merciful, and loving Lord, they'll hate us because we belong to him. It's inevitable that the world reacts against Christians as it did against Jesus. And it's important for us to realize this. Because we sometimes act surprised. You know, we act surprised that upright worldly people and religious people oppose the things of, things of God. But on the contrary, it's inevitable. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The word servant literally means slave. Remember this, Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. Now the Lord said this earlier in chapter 13, verse 16. And there he applied the principle to the disciples with respect to following his example of self-giving, self-denying, sacrificial love that manifests itself in humble service to meet the needs of others. You know, if he, their master, humbly demonstrated his love for them by washing their feet, they then were to be willing to humble themselves and demonstrate their love toward one another, even if it meant performing the lowest, most menial service, such as washing one another's feet, because a servant, a slave, is not greater than his master. Here, however, he uses the same principle to make a completely different point. Here he wants his disciples to know that a slave should not expect any better treatment from the world than his master received. And his point was that the disciples should expect to follow his example of suffering, and they had no right to expect any better treatment from the world than he received. If they persecuted me, Jesus reiterated, they will also persecute you. And this is why Jesus told those who wanted to follow him that to do so meant a cross. It's not a life of ease. It's not a life of endless pleasure. It means a cross. And it's not a popular thing to do. To follow Jesus will not only mean hatred from the world, but also opposition suffering and persecution 
for his sake. And of course, sometimes it's violent. The word persecute in verse 20 has the sense of chasing or to chase like a wild beast, to hunt down. Now, we're not experiencing this in the United States, but it's happening in much of the world. And Jesus says his followers must expect it. Taliban right now are hunting down believers, slaughtering them. But persecution is not always violent. I mean, not every godly Christian is constantly persecuted. I certainly don't want to give that impression. And not all unbelievers openly express hatred for Christians. I mean, the system always does, but not every individual. You see, persecution wears many faces. It can be reflected in the attitudes of unbelievers toward Christians. It can be reflected in their actions toward Christians. And sometimes, as I said, it gets violent and sometimes even deadly. We all certainly have have not had the same degree of, of persecution. And I doubt really any of us could say that we've been persecuted. But somewhere in the world, believers are being pulled from their homes even now and sold into slavery because the slavery, slavery is alive and well in the world. And many of those people being sold into slavery are Christians. Others are being killed. They're being beheaded, shot, burned alive, even crucified. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said to the disciples, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? You know, if you're loving and and, and following Jesus and just trying to live for him uh, in this world, you're not going to be the most popular person on the job. You're not going to be the most popular person at the office or at school may not even be liked by your own family. But we have to remember that Jesus drank the same bitter cup. He drank the same bitter cup that you might be drinking from. I mean, he knows what it's like to be rejected, doesn't he? He knows what it's like to be rejected, to be isolated, to be ridiculed, to be despised, hated, persecuted, even to the point of death on the cross. And so, loved ones, we can count on it. If the world hated and persecuted Jesus, then we shouldn't be surprised when it hates and persecutes us. Jesus said they would. In the world, you will have tribulation. He also went on to say, but be of good cheer or take heart. I've overcome the world. But that doesn't negate the fact we're going to have tribulation in the world. Paul said to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think it must be that Christians tend to think that that was only true then and not now, not for us. No, it is. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But the picture was not entirely bleak. You're going, really? The picture was not entirely bleak. Jesus added the last part of verse 20, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now, what does that mean? 
I'm sure a lot of you have read that, and if you haven't you know, taken the time to look it up or read about it in the commentaries or so forth, you've probably wondered, what does that mean? Well, the implication is that the disciples will carry on the ministry of Jesus after his departure. And in their preaching and teaching, they will continue to spread the message which Jesus himself had taught while he was with them. And they're going to meet with the same response, by and large, that he encountered. The majority would reject the disciples' teaching and persecute them. But, but, there would always be a minority who would receive the disciples' message. I mean, it's always the few and the many. It's always been that way. And so Jesus is saying, if they kept my word, that is, if they obeyed my teaching, right? I mean, if you keep my commandments, it means if you obey my commandments. So Jesus says, if they kept my word, if they obeyed my teaching, my word, and some of them did, then they're going to obey yours also. And the joy, the joy of seeing those few come to faith in Christ would far outweigh the sorrow caused by the hatred and hostility of the many who rejected the gospel. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us, but thankfully, just as some obeyed his word, some will respond to our gospel witness as well. And that's exciting. So although the relationship of the disciples to Jesus would produce in them a love for one another and a love for the lost, the world wouldn't understand or appreciate them. In fact, the world would react with the same hatred that it had for Jesus. And his disciples then and all his followers since cannot expect any better treatment than their master. But you know what? We should be encouraged by this. You say, well, I'm really not that encouraged. (laughs) But we should be encouraged by this. We should be encouraged that no matter what we face in this life, we belong to Jesus Christ. And we're going to live with him forever. And I I said a few weeks ago, what's the worst they can do? Kill us? Right? And, And death, I mean, it's not that I want to go out and get martyred or anything. I don't have a martyr complex. It's like R.C. Sproul said, I'm not afraid of death. It's the process of dying that bothers me. (laughs) But I mean, death for the believer, Christ has taken away the sting of death. Death for the believer is merely the portal to heaven. We're here one moment and then in the presence of Christ. So we should be encouraged. And this is why the Apostle Paul could face all of the hardships and persecutions, and in his case, imprisonments, and yet still declare for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You know, even in prison, Paul, yes, in prison too. Well, even when you're being beaten for your faith, yes, thank God. Thank God he has counted me worthy to suffer for his namesake. I mean, think about it. Paul was a man who had persecuted Christians. He was a murderer of Christians. He had persecuted them with a raging passion. But when he was saved by the grace of God, he then began to experience the persecution. And you're familiar with it. He experienced threats, opposition, stoning, beating, imprisonments, ridicule, and much, much more. I mean, it's hard to even fathom the the amount of suffering and persecution Paul experienced for the sake of Christ. 
And yet, do you remember what he had to say about it all? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, this is what Paul said. So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, these are truths in which we can find rest for our souls in the midst of whatever opposition or persecution we face and will be facing in the future. Because we know that a glorious eternity awaits us with Christ. You don't sound too excited about that. <laughs> we should be excited about that. But you see, we've, we've grown too accustomed to this life. We love this life too much. We should be looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more difficult things become, the more we should be longing for heaven and to be with him. But also at the same time, it should create in us a greater desire to see others come to faith in Christ because the end is drawing nearer. And don't think that uh, the rapture is going to rescue us from any suffering. You know, certainly we are not going to go through the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, because that seven-year period is nothing but the wrath of God being poured out upon an unbelieving world. We're not appointed to wrath. But don't think there won't be tribulation before the tribulation. I love what this old missionary that I knew used to say. He said, I certainly believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. He said, but I also believe in pre-tribulation tribulation. tribulation. (laughs) It's coming. And and seriously, as we look around at what's going on in the world, what's going on in our own country, which I still uh, look at and disbelieve, we better prepare ourselves for what is coming. Oh, we talk about, oh, well, the church would just go underground. You know what that means? That means it's illegal if we have to go underground. And are you willing to be arrested? Everybody is fine with the pastor getting arrested. (laughs) But are you willing to get arrested? You willing to lose your job? You willing to see your family separated and imprisoned? You ready to be tortured? Don't think it can't happen. It can. So let's not talk glibly or proudly. But oh, we'll just go underground. Because we have no idea what that means. We have no idea what that looks like. Well, that passage in 2 Corinthians 4 is a great truth that we can certainly rest our souls in. It's a great source of comfort. You know, we've been saved by grace, by the grace and the mercy of God, and no matter what we face in this life, 
He will give us the grace and the strength that we need. The Holy Spirit through Jesus will enable and empower us. I mean, he's going to sustain us in it and through it. Or maybe he'll take us home because of it. And then we can always fall back on that wonderful promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 11, the first part of verse 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. You know, when the world is said and done its worst, it can't rob us of that glorious promise. As one man said, Jesus taught us to expect rejection. Rejection may be difficult to take, but if we never experience it, we may be hiding our Christianity from others. If we profess Christ and are warmly embraced by the world, we should re-examine our commitment and lifestyle. If we remain silent about our faith in order to gain acceptance by the world, we have made a poor trade. In fact, we are being dishonest in two ways. We deny the faith we claim as central in our lives, and we deceive those whose acceptance we want not by revealing our Christian faith. That's probably a good definition of spiritual adultery. And then he said, the scriptures warn us, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. You know, may God give us the grace, and he will. You know, may the Holy Spirit enable and empower us to stand for Christ in the midst of this dark and sinful, Christ-hating world, no matter what the cost. And he will. God is able, and God is faithful, even when we are faithless. Amen? and we can trust him. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.